Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right, guys. Today, we are going to tackle a very broad subject, um, but a very important one for a lot of investors, and that is uh, diversification. And I think the benefits of diversification and the way that investors should think about diversifying their investment portfolios and you know other things, I guess, in their their financial life or their financial picture. This is something that you know when you hear a lot of people talk, a lot of people you know talk about diversification as being the only free lunch in investing, um, and it is. But there's a lot of important details and intricacies that can happen at many different levels with diversification and. I think as we'll kind of get to, while diversification can be a free lunch, it also is a lunch that can be filling because there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of, I guess, be looking at this or thinking about this. Um, and where we, I think we want to start, and I'll just kind of open it up here, is let's just start at this like a stock portfolio level. So the way this conversation is going to kind of go, we're going to talk about stock diversification strategy diversification, and then we'll get into other ways, other different asset classes, and we'll kind of have this progression, and hopefully that makes sense and it's a nice flow for, for the discussion. But, you know, this idea that on the stock portfolio side of diversification, there's a lot of different opinions or beliefs and even academic studies that kind of show various levels of size portfolios in terms of number of stocks that give you proper diversification. I mean, some people think you could take like the Warren Buffett sort of approach that, you know, once you're at 20 or 30 stocks, you're getting the vast majority of stock specific diversification in the portfolio. Um, we run quantitative models, Matt, you invest in ETFs and run some stock specific models. So, you know, there's different things I think that we believe in, in terms of building diversified portfolios, but let's just sort of start with that in terms of number of stocks, some of the things that are out there, and then we can kind of talk about some of this stuff. Do you guys, I don't, I don't watch Mad Money anymore, or I don't even know if Mad Money exists anymore, but uh, do you remember the whole Am I Diversified thing Kramer used to do? Yes. He still did you ever see that? Does. So like, basically someone would call up and they would like read off four positions in their portfolio and like he'd have the buzzer ready or whatever. And it would be like, am I diversified? And obviously the answer, I mean, I think sometimes he would say yes, but the answer to all of them was obviously no. Um, you know, they, they give this focused portfolio four stocks and then they're like, am I diversified? But there is a lot of debate around this idea of how many stocks you should own. And, you know, we, we were we were to talk about some research that came out recently, but if, if you remember that diversification curve they always show, it would always get to like 30 stocks and then it would be like, all right, that's enough. You know, if, if you own 30 stocks, you're diversified enough. But there, there's a couple of problems with that. You know, the, the first thing is, what are the stocks? You know, th that is the biggest question probably of anything is, it's not really, the number of stocks certainly plays a role in if you're diversified, but the biggest thing is what are the stocks? You know, are they all, you know, if in 2021, I buy a bunch of money losing tech companies and I own 30 stocks. Well, am I diversified? No, because I'm probably down 90% right now. So I wasn't diversified. And so you could have a 10 stock portfolio that's like big name companies across the industries, across the economic spectrum. And you're way, way more diversified than a 30 stock portfolio like that. So I think one thing is, there's no answer in terms of, you know, number of stocks. And, and a lot of it depends on what's going on inside the portfolio. But but also just to just to pick up on this research, you know, this Roni Israelia from uh, NVDR wrote a really interesting paper that even challenged that idea I brought up initially of that, you know, the curve, the diversification curve, sort of 30 stocks is enough. And, and he used some pretty advanced techniques that we won't talk about here, but to show that like in terms of the terminal values of a portfolio, if you, it was more like 250 stocks that was probably a more appropriate level of diversification. So that's a big difference, you know, coming from 30 stocks to almost 10x 30 stocks. So 
I don't think there's any answer, but I, I think what's going on behind the scenes is, is probably more important than the number of stocks. I think to start too, we have to include, I'm going to go even more basic, just the idea of we're always balancing off idiosyncratic risk versus systemic risk. So what's the company level risks you want to take? And what's the market level risks you're going to take? Wherever you want to draw the line, and we can talk about variance and how variance carves that line out for the 30 stock argument. The idea is that the more stuff you own, the more you are likely approaching systemic level risks where you just own the whole market, just definitionally. And the fewer you own, the more company specific risks you take. And that balancing act is really the balancing act between diversification, which is I actually have things that don't zig when the other things zag or have different drivers of what they're going to do. And I, is it an Oswath Demodron thing? The Who says diversification? Which I still think is hysterical, which is the Jim Cramer example you gave, which is, am I, am I diversified? And it's, it, no, am I diversified? Like, did I just fool myself into thinking I've done something different? I don't, I don't remember who did that. It's an excellent term out for, yeah, it's an excellent term for confused diversification. But to your point, and I think it's, it's worth just saying this out loud, it's that idea if I have a one stock portfolio, I have full idiosyncratic risk of my one company. And as soon as I add a second company, and as if we assume that that is a different company, I just didn't buy two biotech stocks or something like that, then I've technically taken my idiosyncratic risk and I've cut it in half. And the whole idea is that if two stocks cuts it in half to 50% idiosyncratic risk, then four stocks is going to get me down to 25. And as I multiply that up, my idiosyncratic risk gets reduced by the time I hit like a 20 stock portfolio, assuming they're all different types of businesses and stocks. And then I've basically started to assume some type of systemic or market level risk. That idea does hold true. Mathematically, it makes sense. It has implications for terminal value on the assumptions of what stays in business and goes out of business. But like, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about ways to reduce the risk that like one thing can blow an irrecoverable hole in your portfolio. Yeah. And you know, the thing for me, and I always say this in the podcast, but for me, investing is always behavior all the way down. And so it really comes down to when you're thinking about the number of stocks, can you stick with the portfolio? And that, that relates to the number of stocks, but also how diversified the stocks are within there. You know, obviously the S&P 500 is going to be a smoother ride than a 30 stock portfolio, no matter how you're going to construct the 30 stock portfolio. So if you are going to is have this a, a 30... diss on the Dow, are you knocking the Dow right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess, I guess it is. I'm, I'm not a big Dow fan, but, uh, but, but anyway, like if you're, if you're constructing, like you have to construct a portfolio you can stick with over time. And if you can't stick with it, it is far worse than the more diversified portfolio. And so a lot of this is, is all about figuring out like what you can withstand as an investor and then setting up a portfolio of stocks that you can that fits within those parameters. Um, you know, I don't know, Matt, if you, you see that too, but I mean, I, I think that really is the biggest thing here. You know, we get trapped in these whole academic arguments and these crazy charts and stuff thinking about diversification, but a lot of it comes down to just that. Well, it comes down to behavior. You nailed it. It's behavioral all the way down. And this is that core idea that you, you want to concentrate to get rich and diversify to stay rich. Super simple. Concentrate to get rich, diversify to stay rich. There's a whole business about the staying rich. And there's a reason they preach diversification because once you've taken that risk, once you've been different in order for yourselves to win, then you flip to how do I be better to just stay in the winning position? It's such a simple concept, but that's how you control for the behavior. If you want to take risks, do it on the way up the mountain. Once you're on the top of the mountain, maybe stop taking unnecessary risks to keep yourself there. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like when we do those these show us your portfolio episodes, any of these guys we've had that probably have very, very large portfolios, they've done exactly what you said, which is they have they have exceptionally diversified portfolios. They've realized the bigger risk to them is losing the money versus trying to eke out some more return. And so I think that's true. You know, once you once you've achieved a certain level, you know, diversification becomes even more important or you know, or becomes the primary concern, well, I think. And your concentrated smaller risks become even less both like desirable and less needle moving. And I think maybe we should do an episode on just like the investing arc of like Warren Buffett, Joel Greenblatt and pick like a third person. But like, like I probably have every Joel Greenblatt book 
on the shelf. Even the disastrously titled You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which I will still regard as a life-changing investment book for me, right up there with a the little book that beats the market and the magic formula. But it's this idea that he goes from running a 10-stock portfolio to running effectively like a long-short indexing strategy to try to harvest a little bit of a factor as like the most desirable approach. So that's what we see. We see different in the early stages to, to amass the wealth, to accumulate the wealth. Once you have the accumulated wealth, then you start thinking like, yeah, that special situation isn't going to move the needle anymore. Buffett's not in microcap stocks because he needs to take on an entire you know railroad company or a bank to slightly move the needle on Berkshire's performance. So... We've talked about the stock sort of diversification and the, I think the importance of that are things that investors should consider. What we can also, I think, discuss is diversification across different types of stock strategies. Like what I'm thinking here is like, you know, to your point earlier about the S&P 500, I mean, that's a large, mostly large cap, what I would consider momentum or growth type strategy because it's market cap weighted. But there are strategies out there that tend to be more value oriented or more quality oriented or more momentum based. And sort of you can, I think as investors, you can take these strategies and in order to try to diversify among the strategies to try to help smooth out the returns or diversify away from one of those styles, you know, dramatically underperforming. Like if you take value over the last 15 years, you know, a, a diversified systematic value strategy, let's say that's holding like the largest I don't know, 250 value stocks, you know, has dramatically underperformed the market. Um, and investors that were allocated to that, you know, they probably underperformed the S&P 500. So incorporating some of these other strategy specific or factor, I guess, specific approaches could also be another way of diversification. I, I want to ask this to you guys specifically on this. So factor diversification is a huge thing. It's a huge part of our practice. It's a huge part of how we incorporate the behavioral side into everything we do. So there's stock level diversification, but then inside of stocks, we can have factor diversification. And I just give it to me the way you explain it. Like, how do you think about factor, factor diversification in portfolio construction as basically like a defense mechanism to retaining wealth? Yeah. And it, be, it becomes a behavioral thing. You know, this is probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my career is, you know, I started as kind of a value guy. And I was like, all right, so I was attracted to the value factor and I was just building portfolios with the value factor. But what you realize is the evidence to support momentum is equally as strong as the evidence to support value. So if I put those two things together, they work at different times. They're not correlated with each other. At least the excess returns are not correlated with each other. Like I'm getting a better portfolio. I'm getting a free lunch effectively. Like a value and momentum portfolio is better than a value portfolio pretty much in every way. I mean, you could argue right now because value is cheap. Maybe you want overweight value or something like that. But thinking about it long term, it's just a win, you know, for it's just a win period. You know, you don't, there's no downside to it and there's only upside. And so I think when we build portfolios, that that's a really important thing. We try to do as much as possible, which is get these wins that are kind of the free lunches, get, get the combination of factors together where we're not giving up return, but we're getting a smoother ride, which is so important going back to our behavioral point before we, we know all investors have a breaking point in terms of what they can take in terms of tracking error against the S&P 500. And so if we can put together two factors and we can reduce that amount of tracking error, it's not only a win like in the academic framework, it's, it's a win in the real world framework because people are going to stick with these portfolios. The other thing just to add on to that is, you know, we are still running pretty focused, concentrated portfolios. So we might blend, let's say, six different strategies together that look very different. Maybe two value, two growth, a quality one to get a 60 stock portfolio. But that's still a pretty tight focused portfolio that's trying to achieve some level of, you know, possible outperformance. So it's it's a little different in the sense that when we run it while we're getting the factor diversification it's still done in sort of a little bit more of a concentrated way. And so that just has an embedded amount of sort of tracking and variability that is going to be in that type of portfolio versus something that maybe like you're doing that with ETS. I'm not quite sure, but you know, that might be one of the differences that's worth just sort of pointing out. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be in the type of stuff we run if, if you can't deal with significant tracking error, because if you're running 30 to 50 stock portfolios, you know, you're still going to have big tracking error no matter what you do. I mean, we can put all these factors together but I, I would argue it's, it's probably the most important for someone like us to use a multi-factor approach 
because when you are operating in those high tracking error levels, you can get a lot of benefit from combining factors. You know, you can make it a little bit better. And, and when you're trying to run focused portfolios and generate those long-term returns, you know, getting people there is so important. So, you know, running like 30, a 30 stock value portfolio versus running a 30 stock value and momentum portfolio, there's a big difference in terms of the types of ride an investor is going to see. This gives us a good opportunity to talk about, you know, when we run as many strategies as we do. So we run, I don't know, over 40 different stock selection models that are across all of these different factors and styles. You know, in thinking back to history, there's different market regimes and periods when the certain styles or certain factors sort of work. Like 2000 to 2006 or so, value was doing great. You know, 2010 to like 2020, it's like it was more momentum and like growth. You know, and in there, there might have been some quality. So it's, you know, by diversifying among all these different strategies, you, you're kind of trying to set the portfolio up to have something that's doing well in all different types of market regimes. And, you know, we don't know, even though everyone tries to predict what's going to work and what's not going to work. You know, we're sort of of the camp that, you know, let's be diversified among a lot of these different strategies because we really don't know what the future is going to hold. And do you feel like like inside of that, because I always come back to this idea and Michael Pompey and my colleague has a has an article coming out on the like the SEC changes and the way that fund companies have to disclose what they do. Factors to me and agree or disagree or expand on this, like they're they're better. <laughs> they're better adjectives for describing what like a stock strategy is or wherever we want to apply various factors that make sense to various asset classes. But it's like, they're, they're better. Instead of somebody telling me like, I'm a growth fund or I'm a value fund, the factor regressions or the factor tools to imply like what they're actually doing, what the manager's doing, how to understand it. That feels like a better way to achieve diversification is to look past the marketing and just say like, what's really happening here? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because we haven't had factor investing for that long, but there's always been factor investing. I mean, you know, you saw like the AQR paper where they broke down like Buffett's returns historically and they showed, you know, Buffett was basically always using something similar to the value factor, you know, combined with the quality factor combined with leverage. So it's always, it might be, yeah, I think you're probably right. It's, it's a better way to explain it maybe to some degree, but it's something that's always gone on. And even the discretionary managers, you know, we can, I, I can take the portfolio of a discretionary manager. I can run it through my quant systems and I can say, well, yeah, this guy has, you know, significant exposure to the value factor. So he, he's not doing it with a computer. He's doing it himself, but he's kind of ending up in the same place. Well, and what, what's, it's a great point, Matt, because I would imagine it, particularly from your seat, like if you're talking to a potential investor, and they share their portfolio with you and they're like, I've had a great, I don't know, last five years. And you look at it and they're loaded up on, you know, large cap growth or all momentum stocks. And you're able to look at, you, you probably would be able to tell that just by eyeing up the holdings if it was, you know, a few. But if it was a hodgepodge of different funds that you were unfamiliar with, you, you know, you, you look at the name that might tell you one thing, but you look at the factor exposure and you're like, oh, wait a minute. This actually isn't a value strategy. This is actually a, a large cap tech strategy, you know? Um, and, you know, you can maybe define that different types of value too. So that's a whole nother discussion. But yeah, I think it's a good, fair point on that. I think that's, and uh, Lee, who we just had on the, Lee Bodoris, who we just had on the podcast the other week too. It's one of those things. Factors represent a professional tool, which anybody has access to. You just have to understand how to go out there and how to do it. Um, or which tools to use to do it, but they're just a better way to understand what makes a strategy a strategy and what makes it tick. Because the eyeball test will tell you if all you own is the big cap tech names for the last 10 years while you're doing great. But the more nuanced view or when we're vetting a new manager to use with clients, this is the kind of some of the ways that we have to look into it and say, what's actually driving that return? And then is there a smarter, cheaper, more efficient way to do it? Because that gets into the heart of, maybe where we're going with some of this conversation. Like, how do you build a portfolio once you understand the factors? Because sometimes it's like, oh, I could get it this way, or I could put half the position on and I can get it this other way. If I just understand these adjectives, these building blocks. There are, there are a great way to understand things beyond, you know, people would always look at sectors as like, am I diversified? That was always the way you do it. This is sort of a level beyond that where you can understand what's driving the return. I mean, it's great to know if you've been invested 100% in financials and that's driving your return, but there, there's these other factors that are really important. You know, we know from academic research, these drive long-term returns. And so it's a great way to look back at a portfolio and say, well, where did that return really come from? Because 
in terms of it working in the future, knowing where the return really came from is an incredibly important thing. Because if that, if that return came from something that I don't expect to continue in the future, then maybe I, I don't want to, maybe I want to adjust that strategy. Maybe I don't want to say I'm the best stock picker in the world because I have this great return, but what it came from is not something I'm expecting to persist. This reminds me of, it's like the best time for, the best time for ESG to finally catch the tailwind that it was on was for the giant period of serial underperformance from traditional value, like capital intensive businesses, like energy. And that's not to say ESG is not a bad thing or is a bad thing. It's not to say people shouldn't do it or embrace it. But I remember for years, look at the returns and it would be like, okay, the factor regression of this is not that ESG is outperforming. It's that a serial underweight to value and or like energy and capital intensive sectors is leading to this outperformance. Being able to see those building blocks past like the stories that are, you're being told, that's that's just that's such an advantage that working with people like you guys, people have. And that's, that's the perfect example because that's something like the factor investors like us, we can't explain ESG. We can't come up with any reason why I should get outperformance of the long term by investing in ESG. So, and again, this is not getting about whether it's the right thing for the world or anything. This is a pure return perspective. But for me, you know, if I'm going to put a client in an ESG portfolio, I want to be able to look back and say, all right, you know, you can invest in this. But from the perspective of the factors that drive returns, you know, I, I don't expect you to outperform with this. And so that, that's a great example of something that has worked that maybe you want to look at it a different way and explain it a different way because what's driving it may not be something that's going to work long term. You made a great comment a minute ago about uh, regimes and maybe this, this ESG example and serial underperformance of value slash energy for an extended period of time made ESG look like a really brilliant thing that people should just do as de facto. But then what Jack said was it's hard to understand from a factor standpoint because like the factor standpoint was, oh, you're just missing the value factor. And that's why growth worked. Therefore, ESG worked because it's uh, without or short the value factor. Do you want to just comment maybe on regimes again and how like just how brutal these regimes can be and how much they can distort our view if we're not using factors? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what that makes me think of is if you didn't have energy exposure or value exposure during that period that I mentioned, the 2000, or really 99 to, you know, 06, um, you know, you would have dramatically underperformed. So if you, if there was ESG strategies back then, you know, they would have been way behind, um, you know, strategies that had exposure to to value in those types of stocks. And, and, and I even think you could probably look at um, maybe 2022, if my, if my timing's right, where I think at the end of 2021, you know, energy was at one of its lowest percentages of the overall S&P 500. It had gone from like a high of like six or 7% down to 2%. And then guess what, guess what did the best last year? or one of the best performing sectors was, was well, at least half of the year. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So that's, that's, that's a good point. And I think the, the regime thing is really important. It, it ties back to diversification. Like we've been talking about, because if I see value as something that's going to have 10 year periods where it doesn't work and a lot of its outperformance is going to come in these really small periods, then I need in those 10 year periods where it's not working, I need other factors for diversification because it's not just, magnitude of underperformance, it's, it's sort of the length and duration of underperformance that can be a huge issue for investors. And so that's where you need that diversification because trying to explain to somebody, your, my value strategy hasn't worked for 10 years, you know, you need to stick with this, it's not gonna work. But those other things coming in is gonna make that 10 years more bearable. I, I have to invoke one music reference here and I, I was not anticipating this one, so this is good though. Do you remember the, the Elvis song, Too Much? I don't know that one. You'll sort of go to YouTube and find it. You'll hear it. You'll be like, oh, I know this song. It was a not his biggest hit, but one of his early Ed Sullivan show songs. So like the, the song is like, I love you, baby, too much with this dramatic pause. And it's like, you can love value too much. And the, the second verse of the song, which is just like a howler of a line, is uh, you spend all my money too much. And it's like, this is the trade-off here. If you totally fall in love with something, you get the downsides of what you've fallen in love with. But if you diversify that thing, you can back off. If you can be aware of things like regimes, that things are going to phase in and out of style, you can start to think. And I, I know we're, we're going to talk cross-asset class in a minute here too. 
there are so many ways to use diversification as a stabilizer to preserve wealth if you understand factor diversification within an asset class and then also across asset classes. So I wanted to just before we move on to um, beyond stocks here, I want to just quickly play is just is Justin diversified. So yes, I'm gonna please. I'm going to try to just outline my portfolio here and then I think I know the answer. So I'm kind of setting you guys up here, but I'm, I'm curious. So I have 15 different, what I would consider holdings in my portfolio. I have two sector plays. I own three individual stock positions. And then I have 10 different investment strategies represented. I have value, high quality, international, risk manage, which is like multi-asset and momentum, small cap value, small cap growth, concentrated momentum. And then I have a uh, basically a position in the NASDAQ. So I'm getting like tech exposure through. Now I didn't, and what I would say is um, on the stock positions, one is a small cap speculative stock. That's kind of like a lottery ticket. I don't advocate that for anyone. That's just my own personal view of the position I have that I made a you know bet on. Um, I owe a very large cap, high quality stock. And then um, my wife got gifted some, some stock. Uh, so anyway, so, and what I would also say is generally speaking, I try to have these positions close to equal weight. It doesn't always work that way, but I'm, I'm not, th these are all held in retirement accounts. So I can kind of move and shift around and I've taken some rebalancing opportunities over time to kind of take profits from things and allocate to stuff that's not working. So I think that's kind of been good for me, but I don't know. I'd have to look back exactly. So, you know, is, is, is Justin diversified? What do you think? So Wait, Jack, are, are you Aaron Burnett or Jim Kramer? And basically, which one of us gets <laughs> well, to yell, a, they know nothing? <laughs> I need a red buzzer. Uh, I'm trying to, Matt, I'm just trying to, yeah, I, I can't yeah, locate I a red buzzer on short notice, but I, I need one. All I have I is my red statement. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, definitely across, you know, across equities and stuff. And I, I kind of knew, our, I know already what you're doing to some degree, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think you are, you are diversified. Um, you know, you, you obviously have multiple strategies in there. You know, I know your individual stock positions are not like some massive portion of your portfolio where you're overweighted in one name or something like that. So yeah, across like for an equity portfolio, you are diversified, but this also probably plays into what we're going to talk about next, which is this whole idea of in the world we live in today, you know, we've all pretty much built these portfolios of stocks and bonds for a really, really long period of time. And the question of, can you be diversified if that's all you have? Um, and, and I think that would be the, the, the answer is clearly you're diversified in, in stocks. And, and I know you have a do a multi-asset position as well, but can any of us be diversified if we're relying on the past 30 years and we're just building a stock and bond portfolio? And the most important question, it's not like, well, I, I can assume Justin's making so much money off of his, uh, YouTube <laughs> business that, uh, this, this is inconsequential <laughs> to him, but the reality is. We can't talk about this either in like, and this is the failure of like the Kramer segment. You can't, am I diversified? Well, I'm just talking about one thing. And then we're not saying if that's for consumption or if that's for whatever else. We're just saying like cute numbers on a scoreboard. The reality is, yes, you're diversified probably inside of a stock portfolio, inside of a retirement account, inside of a qualified account. But that does, that speaks nothing of your human capital, of the rest of your investment capital, of another piece that we talk about, Meb Faber talks about all the time, like we work in financial services. If the market goes down and we lose our job at the same time, Justin, are you living on that retirement portfolio? I don't think you're retirement age yet. Yeah, those are two. That's, that's exactly where I was hoping you guys would both go because those are both, I think, sort of weak spots in the, in the portfolio, in the allocation. Um, and so those are, yeah, I think those, those are good. Those are good points. Thank you for, I'm, I'm, shifting 25% gold after this conversation. Okay, Jack? We can yeah. officially say, Justin, <laughs> you know something. <laughs> I, just, I just don't like, Matt, that you're suggesting that Kramer can't be read four stocks over the phone and have a red buzzer and can't properly determine whether someone's diversified. There's a I, reason. I that worked. There's a reason he has a giant disclaimer <laughs> before and after every ad. Yeah. We'll start, we'll start the Matt Ziegler, am I diversified? Well, if people start calling to the show. And you can, uh, you can handle it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> we all know how that goes. <laughs> well, and thinking back to, you know, the point that's kind of um, been made a couple times here, you know, it's been a great decade and a half to be, you know, a U.S.-based equity investor. 
I mean, you know, you had the COVID crash, but I mean, that was, you know, what, what was that three months and then stocks were back, you know, off to the races again. So, you know, there's this idea and Jack, this is the point that you made that, you know, and a lot of these guys that we've had on that are a lot smarter than us, you know, they talk about building these robust portfolios that can withstand many different types of market environments. And the future is, this is something Adam Butler has talked about, you know, that the past is only one sampling of an infinite number of, you know, outcomes or whatever that quote that he says and that, you know, the future is probably going to look very different. So, you know, when we think about that and we really wrap our arms around it and our heads around it, it's like having some of these other assets outside of stocks and bonds, you know, can probably be very important for many investors. Yeah. And just, and just taking a step back, because you made another important point there when you mentioned US, because that, that's something we should have brought up on the stock side is, you know, in, in theory, you should you can't really have a fully diversified equity portfolio if you don't have some international exposure. If everything is in your home country, that typically is not a diversified portfolio. I mean, it can be very diversified inside the U.S., but typically international stocks have introduced a, a pretty high level of diversification relative to U U.S. stocks. Now, that hasn't happened in a very long time. You know, they've dragged on performance, but I think that's something that's important for everybody to keep in mind because there's going to be a period at some point where the U.S. is going to struggle and that international diversification will help. So just, just that first, but then also on the multi-asset thing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, when you only see something for 30 years, you just think that's the way it is. And that's not just individual investors, that's people like us too. You know, but when I, when I had Andy Constant on uh, Show Us Your Portfolio last time, you know, his answer to this question about like, is the 60-40 portfolio enough in this new world was the 60-40 portfolio was never enough. You know, just because something happened over 30 years doesn't mean that that, you know, that was the way the history had to play out, getting back to your, your thing with Adam Butler. So there, there's a very interesting debate to have right now. And I think this is the most important debate investors can have, which is, can I have just stocks and bonds? And if we do enter a new world where inflation stays up and stocks and bonds remain correlated as they have been recently, you know, do you need other things? And, and you know, one of the interesting things about these guys that kind of start from first principles is they'll, they'll show you that if you look historically, a portfolio that combines all, like a risk parity type portfolio that combines all these asset classes together and makes it so they contribute equal risk to the portfolio, that is a better, from an academic standpoint, that is a better portfolio than stocks and bonds, no matter how you look at it. You know, if, if you take that portfolio and, and use leverage, which is a dangerous word we can talk about, but if you lever that portfolio to the same risk as a stocks and bond portfolio, it is a superior portfolio. It has a better return, it has a better risk adjusted return, it's better in every way. And it even did pretty well, you know, in the period where stocks and bonds were outperforming. So it's an interesting thing. And it's especially an interesting thing in light of the fact that these types of strategies, which typically, you know, involve futures and, you know, were never really accessible to your average investor are starting to become accessible to your average investor. So it's an interesting debate as to whether these types of strategies should now be at least part of a portfolio, if not, if not a core part of everyone's portfolio. Matt, how do you, like when you're, thinking about the allocation be between stocks, bonds, alternatives, you know, how does that get, I guess, dialed up or down for your clients? Is it based on where they are, their goals, their risk tolerance? Like, how do you kind of approach that? So I want to, the simpler version of the, the, the many futures and one reality thing is more things can happen than will happen. So we start from that point. Then we look at things like historical factors and how they've worked and operated across asset classes. And we use those to derive some set of capital market assumptions or basically what we think things will be going forward, not just in return. I think people kind of forget this part. They're like, oh, what are stocks going to do? What are bonds going to do? We're at that wonderful time of the year when all the Wall Street analysts are about to tell us where the S&P is going to go next year after they've been wrong every year forever. You know, like... Who cares about that stuff? What really matters is what do we think things are going to do and how do we think those things are going to relate to each other? And if we're in the business of accumulating wealth, then we're in the business of trying to think about what's the, what's the way to accumulate the most wealth on the opportunities that are on the table. And if we're in the business of preserving wealth, then we're looking at all these assumptions, we're looking at all these correlations, and we're saying, how can I best spread out the risk, which is what you were just so eloquently describing the 
how much to have in stocks versus cash versus bonds versus alts. And then all the subcategorizations below is driven by the assumptions. We come up with our own assumptions and then what those correlations are across them to try to say, extra Corey Hofstein, how do we stack returns by understanding the correlations of what we're stacking on top of each other to achieve what we want as a goal, either for consumption or as a gift. If we need money to come off the top to pay for stuff in life, somebody has enough money, but they need, they're dependent on their qualified accounts to make distributions. Great. They have a different asset allocation than the family office who would have to like, even if they had everything in cash in a bank account earning zero, it would still take them three generations to spend down the money. Both of those have very different ways that we're going to approach asset allocation with them to achieve that goal. And it's going to come back to this idea of diversification and how do we look at correlations, cross asset classes, cross tax profiles and accounts and where they're held to try to get a mix that they can behaviorally stick to over time. I don't know if I actually answered the question there. Yeah, no, that's that, the spirit that, of it. That was great because it, it goes to show what I opened the discussion with, which is diversification is a simple concept. But when you actually get down into the weeds, whether you're building a portfolio, allocating among strategies, doing a financial plan and mapping out all these assets and correlations and return expectations, and then aligning it with goals or consumption needs. I mean, this is this is like the heart of, of you know, I don't know, investing and planning and what it really all comes down to, which is why it's such an important topic to discuss. And it's something that, you know, I feel like diversification gets like just thrown out there. And there's a lot of details and a lot of important considerations that investors need to be thinking about. Um, and yeah. I always relate this back just at the simplest level for people. I talk about it like a garden. And I know I'm sure a million people have a variation on this, this, this metaphor, but it's like you plant the garden at the beginning in the spring or at the beginning of the summer, and then reality happens. And anybody who's had a garden or had something in their backyard or whatever has had the year where it like rains too much and nothing grows. And you have a hundred like cucumbers or tomatoes or the year that like, there's no rain at all. And then you have some weird bumper crop of the obscure pepper you planted and whatever else. And it's this idea that like you're going to plan for something and then life is going to collide with it and something else is going to happen. And diversification is the idea that you keep planning to have enough variety so you can still make a salad in July or August. And if you do this right, you'll still make a salad in July or August, but it takes that proactive treatment of what you're doing to achieve that. And so you don't like I so tragically did, you know, ruin one of your basil plants at the beginning of the year and then look sadly at your pizzas for the next several months. <laughs> yeah. There's this idea of diversification is always having to say you're sorry. And then that's kind of the challenge with this stuff is, you know, we, we talk about these multi-asset portfolios and we talk about, well, you need more than stocks and bonds, but it's very hard for an investor who's looking at the line items in their portfolio to look at the other line item outside of stocks and bonds for 20, 30 years and realize this has been a drag. And, and this is why I think this idea of return stacking that Corey's doing is very, very interesting because what they found a way to do is they found a way to sort of give you your 60-40 portfolio and then put this other stuff on top of it so that it becomes effectively, you know, if you're putting something like managed futures on top of a 60-40 portfolio, whatever the performance of managed futures is, that just becomes an additional return on top of your 60-40 portfolio that you're already getting. Because some people would argue like something like risk parity is a better way to invest than something like return stacking. But the reality is behaviorally, return stacking is probably a better way to invest because ultimately you're, you're, if you're getting that 60-40, you're minimizing the tracking error, you're minimizing the risk here to look different than your friends, but you're still getting some of these diversifiers and putting them on top of it. I love that idea because it's it goes back to like the lens through which you're going to see that, whether you have a professional helping you or you're doing it yourself, you still need to understand the lens through which you're seeing this portfolio. And diversification, as you said, it means you always hate something you own. There's always something you're like, why, why, why do I own that? Why does, why does this gold allocation bring me nothing but pain or whatever it is? But it's not so much that it's going to kill you, but it's there because every so often you're like, well, thank God I still own those large cap tech stocks that my value investor like core like hates me owning, <laughs> but like, wow, wow, have they saved me. 
all these new things that are coming out are, are they're interesting. They're they're kind of a double edged sword because I think it's really really cool that we're going to have all these sort of institutional type strategies that people used to run are now in ETFs and they can be great diversifying strategies. They can lead to more optimal portfolios, but they also can be fairly complex. And some of them are, are using leverage behind the scenes. It's just, it becomes really, really important to understand what you're doing and understand what you're owning. Because these are, a lot of these tools are meant as sort of building blocks to put together into a portfolio. And if you just take one of the building blocks, you, you can end up in a lot of trouble because you, you don't totally understand what's going on there. So I think it's really cool. And I, and I think over time, these are the types of things I'll probably use in my own portfolio because I, I think there are ways, you know, if you just look at it from an academic perspective, these are building a, you can use these things to build a more optimal portfolio, kind of going back to the free lunch thing we said, but it's also really important to understand what they are. Because if you don't understand what they are, if you don't understand when they work, going back to the drivers of return we talked about before, when they work, when they don't work, how much leverage they use, if you don't understand all that stuff, you're going to get yourself in trouble. One of the things as just trying to circle back for just a minute to what Matt was talking about. I think that would be really neat and maybe it already exists. I might even do it myself, try to make it if it doesn't, if it's not already out there, Matt, you might know is, you know, I think it'd be cool to use like the Vanguard asset class, like expected returns. So they publish on a monthly basis, the long-term expected returns and major asset classes among stocks and bonds. Um, and then you could incorporate some of these alternatives too, if you could find a source, but then, you know, sort of for like, an investor like mapping, taking a portfolio, like you have a million dollars and let's say you're nearing retirement or you're in retirement and then trying to segment out buckets of money into those asset classes to get a sense of where, you know, the strategy might be with variance in there with variability. You have to take that into account as well. But, you know, you could do like confidence intervals and, and, and sort of almost make like your own and this is kind of what like some of these planning software packages sort of, I think, do. But I think from like for someone that might want to see it, you could probably like build something like that in Excel. And I don't know, it could be pretty powerful, I think, in terms of helping someone, I don't know, just see various asset classes, what the returns might be, what the risk is. Um, and yeah. Something we do at Sunpoint behind the scenes as part of the investment committee is we map the returns across all those asset classes and different managers because some of them are like in subcategories, kind of like how like value, you might have like stock value exists below stocks like in the, right. in like the framing, right? So you have, to, you take those things, you make your assumptions, you do your correlation analysis, you use whatever you use, whether you use, um, Aladdin from BlackRock or you use Orion or whatever. There's lots of risk tools advisors and people in our roles use. But then you want to look at your progress against those assumptions and you have to have some type of, and this is the other topic inside this, you got to have some rebalancing process too, which is generally to say, if you're mapping all these things against some expected path, when you're exceeding that path and you're following along with some of the assumptions, usually correlations, like that tells you guess what? This like growth so far this year just did way better than expected, especially tech growth. So if you have tech growth this year, when are you going to flip? When are you going to rebalance and go, I just got three times the return I was expected in this thing. And do I have the discipline to like over overly simplistic? Am I going to like tell sell tech to buy energy in the middle of uh, 2023? And like, do I have that type of discipline inside of each asset class and then cross asset class to know where I am and where I'm pacing and how I'm going to spread those returns out? Because when you're doing that, you're also spreading out the risk. Because if you don't, you're allowing those risks to concentrate again. Yeah, very important concept. I mean, I think that that rebalancing and this is, I think investors struggle with this. I mean, actually, we just had a question come in from a podcast viewer we couldn't give personalized advice, but they were asking, you know, they rebalance, I think, one twelfth of their portfolio every month. So there's 12 different rebalancings throughout the year. And, you know, how to approach the redeployment of that capital, whether it was putting it in the stuff that's done the worst, maybe putting it in the stuff that's done the best, or trying to hit like a target allocation, like you're, I think, suggesting that. So th those are all sort of different decisions that have to be made on the rebalancing periods. 
and all that stuff is done to preference with tax things in mind. Mm -hmm. We're we're big advocates. Like everybody should have a version of a policy portfolio to, to guide these things, and then behaviorally, why you might you might or you might not override. Because like the reality is, if I work for a company and a large portion of my compensation comes in company stock, and I'm limited in my ability to diversify at any one clip because of taxes or otherwise then I have to know how I'm going to deal with the overweights that ensue. The lack of diversification my exposure gets me because maybe I just can't for whatever reason. And then the flip side of that is like, what else is going on? The, like the rest of my life, the rest of my situation to understand how do I rebalance inside and across taxable and tax deferred accounts, everything else. It's such a more complicated puzzle and it's so personal, which is why just getting help for somebody to think through this in your personal situation Huge, huge difference. Yeah, and this is so important because diversification and rebalancing tie together because you can't get the full ver the full benefits of diversification unless you rebalance. And so if I'm putting all these uncorrelated asset classes in there, you know, when one asset class shows it has its great period and works really well, like I want to be rebalancing back into the other ones. And you know, the, the greatest example I give of this, and you know, we don't advocate anybody use these types of funds, but it works as a great example, is this the idea of tail risk funds. So if somebody has a very small exposure in their portfolio to the tail risk funds. If you look at the long-term return of these tail risk funds, it's not very good. You know, some of them are like the best guys might be able to do well, but for the most part, the long-term return is not very good, but they have one unique property is when you get 2020, when you get the COVID crisis, these things go up hundreds of a percent. And so the only way to take advantage of those types of funds is when they're having their hundreds of percent return, you have to rebalance. And the, the eye-opening thing for me was this idea that let's say these tail risk funds have just as an example, let's say they have a long-term return of zero, but they have these huge periods where they have these, you know, these huge returns, I can actually add something to my portfolio. If I have stocks and bonds and I add a tail risk fund, I can add something to my portfolio that has a return of zero, even though stocks and bonds have a much better return than that. And I can increase the compounded annual return of my portfolio by rebalancing. And so th that's just a good example. Not again, not to advocate tail risk funds, but it's, it's an example of how rebalancing uncorrelated assets is it's an extreme example of that can actually add to your return even if the uncorrelated asset you have in there does not have as good a return as the other assets in your portfolio. Just shake out the actual, how that could actually like take place in terms of when you're buying and selling the tail risk fund. So I think that's important. Yeah, so you have to, you know, when you're getting that huge return, you have to have some sort of systematic process to start to take gains as it goes. Right. Because, you know, one of the things we saw with that period in 2020 is, you know, if you use the VIX or whatever as an example, like volatility spiked up a ton but then it just came all the way back down. So, you know, if you're not during those periods where that thing is producing its best return, if you're not rebalancing, you're not getting any of the, it's not like you're not, you're basically losing all of the benefit. And again, the, the point of this you is not- You could ride it straight back down to zero and what right. a good ride that is. So it's just, a, it's a really good example to use, even if, you know, I, I don't think most people should have tail risk funds in their portfolio probably, but it's a really good example to use because it's so extreme. You know, when you have something like that that produces, you know, that can have like this slow drift down over time, but can produce 300% in a month, that's a perfect example to use to show the benefits of rebalancing. Because with something like that, if you don't rebalance, all the benefit is gone. I want to highlight around this point. Most people don't know how to buy or sell. Just as a default, they don't understand how to buy or sell. And rebalancing is the act of buying and selling. And the act of having assumptions or things you build portfolios off of is your, your act of understanding when something is doing what it's supposed to do and when something is doing something it's not, it doesn't usually do. That makes up a distribution. That's the whole reason tail risk funds happen. They take advantage. It's just like Buffett with the insurance underwriting division. And I forget the name of the current insurance lead, but it's like, there's a hurricane. We want to go do risk reinsurance when premiums are at their highest right after the hurricane. That's when we want to go write policies. When there hasn't been a hurricane in five years, we will write no insurance policies. That discipline of when to be in and out of certain markets, when like odds start to stack in your favor is everything. And it's not easy. Like everybody struggles with this. Did you guys see the FanDuel thing from like last weekend? I, I do no sports betting or anything like this. But did you see the FanDuel thing from a week ago? I think I heard about it, but I don't remember it exactly. So this is like tail risk hedging and diversification and rebalancing, like in a professional business example. Oh, so it was Rogers thing. This is the thing with the field goal in every game, right? So, so, okay. so basically it was like, I think it was a $20 million, like 
thing where it was a it was a house made parlay that they had posted about like so I guess statistically like not all the field goals get made on a given afternoon <laughs> and they just hadn't really accounted for that and how they set the odds on the bet and mm-hmm. when this fluke thing happened where uh the I guess the Giants kicker lines up with 19 seconds left against uh, the Cardinals like FanDuel had to pay out $20 million because they miscalculated the risk. They had the wrong assumption. And like, this is what it boils down to. What are the assumptions and the things that you're going to do? What are the factors that decide those assumptions? And then what's your discipline to rebalance or buy and sell each of those assumptions on an ongoing basis forward throughout time? Knowing there's times you're going to hate something you own, but knowing other times you're going to love it, like those lucky people who took that quirky 19 seconds left in the game flyer on that field goal. Yeah. And I think the, the most important thing you said is this whole idea of discipline and, and having a systematic process, because yeah, if you're absolutely. sitting there yourself being like, do I rebalance? Do I not rebalance? You know, to your point back about the growth stocks, like are the growth stocks going to keep going up or, you know, if with the tail risk fund, you know, is volatility going to continue to rise? You know, it's COVID. I think the world's going to come to an end. I expect volatility to double again. Like you can't do stuff like that. You've got to have some sort of rules going set in advance as to how I'm going to rebalance. And the tail risk fund, again, is a great example of that because in a situation where the world's going to end and these things are spiking, you know, you want to have a disciplined process. Here's how I'm going to handle selling this. I'm not going to let my emotions get the best of me. Here's exactly how I'm going to do this. And I'm not going to get it perfect. I'm not going to tick the bottom or whatever, but it's, it's going to work and it's going to give me the benefit of that diversification over time. So I think that just to sort of uh, conclude this, what I really hope that people got out of this is that just the importance of thinking about this, thinking about diversification deeply. You know, if you have your own portfolio and you're managing it um, and you've just bought stocks and mutual funds over the years and it's kind of like a hodgepodge, you know, hopefully this discussion can help bring to the surface the importance of, you know, thinking about diversification strategically, being disciplined with it and um, doing things like rebalancing to make sure that you're taking advantage of what diversification can give you. So good discussion, guys. Thanks everyone for listening. We will see you next time. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.